This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. You'll find more information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website, churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. And welcome back to the Church Society podcast. I'm Lee Gatiss. I'm the director of Church Society. And I'm joined today by Dr. Martin Davey, uh, who is the uh, theological consultant for the Church of England Evangelical Council. He is a Latimer Fellow working with the Latimer Trust and also a doctrine tutor at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. Welcome to the Church Society podcast, Martin. Thank you, Lee. It's, it's good to be with you. Now, Martin, you've produced a couple of books recently, one of which is 800 or so pages long, which I read with great joy and delight on the subject of bishops. And then for the sake of um, the weaker brethren, you've produced a concise version of the same as well, both published by Latimer Trust. How long is the the shorter version? Uh, Clarification, the first book book is actually published by Gilead Books. Ah, that's right, Gilead Books. Sorry, you're right. And Latimer have produced the second in in conjunction with Gilead, Gilead, and the second one is 88 pages. 88 as opposed to 800. So thank the Latimer Trust for the shorter version of the Gilead Books um, thing. Now, uh, why are you so interested in bishops? What, What has just sparked your interest in that? What is it? There's a long, I have a long term interest in bishops that goes back to the fact that um, for 13 years I worked as the theological secretary for the Church of England's Council for Christian Unity and theological uh, secretary for its Faith and Order Commission. Part of the faith and order and ecumenical work of the Church of England involved thinking about why the Church of England is as it is and why it differs from other churches. So if, for example, you are in discussions with the Methodists, and I was involved with that, one of the big questions that has been dogging Anglican Methodist discussions about ecumenism since the 1930s is why should Methodists have bishops? (laughs) If you know the history of the Anglican Methodist conversations that have taken place since the 30s, the sticking point for many Methodists has been, well, why should we take our bishops on board? Why is that required? Those, for example, who opposed the, on the Methodist side, who opposed the Anglican Methodist unity scheme of the 1960s, were very strongly pressing that question. Why do we need to have bishops? So people like Sidney Barrett on the Methodist side were saying that. And again, discussions that I was involved in with the Methodists raised the same question, and similar questions were raised by discussions we had with the United Reformed Church and the Baptist Union. They were saying to us, why do you have bishops? Why should we have bishops? And that's a question that we often ask ourselves, isn't it? And that pushed me back to ask the question, why do we have bishops? And the problem I discovered as I did this work for the Church of England was that our reason for having bishops was inadequate. Inadequate? Yeah, what we were saying in our material was we have bishops because 
we have bishops. Basically, this is just our <laughs> tradition, and also because it's a good way to organize the church. There was no theological argument which said, actually, this is in accordance with the will of God for these reasons. Yes. It's simply a pragmatic argument. We have had this for a long time. It's what most churches across Christendom have, and therefore it's the one that we should adopt. Now there these, are no there are no bishops in the Bible though are there so obviously they're not biblical I've heard that so many times from fellow evangelical Anglicans you know there's no bishops in the Bible they're obviously not biblical therefore we don't really need to have them uh, at all and pragmatically they might be estate agents or something uh, or or just a sort of diaconal deacon ministry um, so we'll put up with them on a pragmatic level but there's, they're not in the Bible. The, the words for, for um, overseer and elder are sort of overlapping. It's the same thing. So the whole idea of bishops, it's ridiculous and unbiblical. Isn't that true? Well, no. Because <laughs> to, to, to pick up my thread again, as I was doing this work for the Church of England, I discovered that there is an alternative tradition, an alternative serious Anglican tradition, which says, Actually, there are very good reasons for having bishops, which are more than merely pragmatic. This is not just the way that church history happens to have panned out. It is in accordance with the will of God. Now, if you give me a minute, to, I'll explain why. The basic position is set out by the great 16th century Anglican writer Richard Hooker, who notes that the first bishops were the apostles. Mm -hmm. The word bishop simply means someone who has oversight. That's what episkopos means. And obviously the big bishop is Jesus. Jesus is the overseer of the church. Yes. And he delegated that oversight to the apostles, as we know. They were the first leaders of the church. So Hooker says quite rightly that they were the first bishops. What we find, though, as we track through Acts and then through the New Testament, is obviously two things were probably were coming up one of which was that the bishops were that the apostles were mortal and the second was they couldn't be everywhere yes their mortality means the question what happens when the apostles die who will take over that leadership role and the second is they can't be everywhere so what who oversees the churches when they're somewhere else as the churches grow, as, for instance, Paul has a numerous churches to look after, what does he do when he can't be there in person? Now, what we find as we go through the New Testament is that the answer to those questions is provided by the emergence of the first bishops. Now, it's perfectly true that in the New Testament, the terms presbyteros and episkopos, elder and bishop, are used synonymously. And it's not until the beginning of the second century in the works of uh, Ignatius of Antioch that you get the term bishop used for a specific role. But what you find in the New Testament is that you get people occupying the Episcopal office very early. If you think about it, ask the question, who was running the church in Jerusalem? Yes, originally, in the first century, in the early yeah, days. Originally, it's the apostles. But from uh, but they then scatter from Acts 8 onwards. They go out of Jerusalem. 
And what does that leave you with? Who's in charge? The answer is James. Mm. You find in Acts and you find in, in the epistles that actually the person who has responsibility for the church in Jerusalem is James, the brother of Jesus. You can see that, can't you, in Acts 15 in the Council of Jerusalem, but also in the fact that James is the one targeted by the secular authorities. Yeah. And you find it later in, in Acts, because when Paul goes back to Jerusalem, who does he go and see? He goes and sees James and the elders. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and a good argument could be made that the letter of James is, in fact, James acting as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, writing to the other Jewish Christian communities in Judea and Syria. Mary and the surrounding areas as a bishop saying this is what you should do uh brothers Adelphoi in James means fellow clergy basically so do you think um I, I was intrigued by this note in in your in your book about the book of James that it is actually another pastoral epistle so just as 1 Timothy 2 Timothy and Titus are written by Paul to other pastors um, the book of James may well be the same sort of thing. He's writing to, as the Bishop of Jerusalem, to other uh, elders, pastors in the church. That's a fascinating insight to the book of James. It, it is. And, it's, and, it's, and, and the argument can be that it's very early. Mm. It's one of the earliest letters we have. And what do we, what, what do we have right at the beginning of the New Testament, if that's right, is someone exercising an Episcopal role, an oversight role, writing to his fellow clergy. So that's very early. And you've, the, the early church is quite clear that James was the first bishop of Jerusalem. They call him the first bishop of Jerusalem and they trace the Episcopal succession in Jerusalem for those who followed him after he was eventually martyred in about AD 64. Mm. Now, obviously, that historical witness can be questioned. It's not inspired like the Bible is, but it makes sense of the biblical evidence. Yes. In other words, the history of the church the testament related church and the testament of the bible cohere and say james was in charge and do you think that uh, timothy and titus are also bishops that's the next thing uh, the, the the um history of the church is quite clear that timothy and titus were bishops uh, there's un unanimity from the second john which the timothy and titus were the first bishops of ephesus and crete respectively mm. that the, there is no break in that tradition and that makes sense of what you actually find in the pastoral epistles. They're not given the name bishop, but what are they doing? What's their responsibility? Their responsibility is to oversee, under the direction of Paul, the clergy and laity, as we would now say it, in Ephesus and Crete. Yes. And if you think about the reality of the early church, they were not just congregational pastors to one church ephesus would have had several house churches it's a big city and would have covered the surrounding area so there would have been several what we would call parishes or parish churches and similarly in crete there are churches a number of them we know that from titus uh, and therefore they are exercising an episcopal role what are they doing they are responsible for uh appointing overseeing ministers for teaching the flock for a fugitive heresy it's the episcopal role and you're seeing charges against ministers but you're not to entertain a charge unless there's two or three witnesses but you yeah. obviously are to entertain yeah. charges against uh, other other ministers so that's a, an episcopal role you're meant to uh, look out for who gets stipends and um 
Exactly. Those who are good at preaching and teaching should be paid double. Is that right? In one Timothy? Uh, five? Absolutely. absolutely. Um, so, yeah. you want, you want, so ask what the role is. It's a role of, of bishops. Yes. Now, you can say they were temporary, but there's nothing in, in letters themselves that says they're temporary. It doesn't say how long their appointment is. No. So they have an open-ended appointment to do an Episcopal role. And those letters are retained by the church because they are so useful for teaching us about bishops and what bishops should be doing. I remember noting in my um, Reformation commentary on scripture volume on the uh, pastoral epistles um, that some of the Reformation era commentators um, say that Timothy and Titus are evangelists, not bishops. Because it says in 2 Timothy 4, do the work of an evangelist, but not do the work of a bishop. But if it looks like a bishop and it quacks like a bishop, it's a bishop. <laughs> now, an evangelist, that's the distinction, an important distinction. An evangelist is somebody who evangelizes and he's called to do that work, to spread the, spread the word. But evangelist in the New Testament is not an office. Apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists are, uh, apostles are different from evangelists, but evangelists and prophets are not roles. They are not orders in the modern sense. Mm. You Is there have... anything else in the New Testament? So I've heard people talk about the stars in uh, in Revelation as well, or the angels, uh, the angels no. of the churches. Yeah, the, the angels of the church in Revelation, if you ask the question who they are. Now, if you look at modern commentators, the prevailing view seems to be that they are the personification of the churches. In other words, the angel of the church in Ephesus, for example, is the church in Ephesus as a whole. But there's no other example in the New Testament or in Christian literature of the term angel being used as a personification for a church. And it's not demanded from the context. But if you just approach letters, they seem to be writing to people an individual, the angel, it's not written to the church. They're not saying to the church in Ephesus. It's the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, an obvious other alternative would be to say literally they are angels. In other words, that, that, that just as in the Bible, mm. uh, angels have responsibility for nations. So these are actual literal angels, spiritual beings who have responsibility. But the problem with that is that it makes the well-being of a church responsible uh, the responsibility of an angelic being so the church is being praised or punished for the shortcomings of uh, an angelic being which is a very odd idea you know yes. is, is it, and also uh, as one writer put it why does god need to write letters to angels if they are literally <laughs> angels? yes quite well i think there's plenty there for 100%. us to be chewing on and there is in your 800 page book even more exegetical and uh biblical material for us to to look at i'll leave people to to dig into that if they like but oh so you wonder one other thing go on quick, quickly there that it needs to be noted that the sort of material that we've been looking at Mm. on the biblical basis of, of, of bishops was universally accepted until the 16th century. There is no Christian tradition which was not Episcopal until the 16th century. Everybody accepted 
that Timothy and Titus were bishops. Everybody accepted James as bishops. Everybody accepted that the, the, the angels and revelation were bishops. That was not doubted. Mm. And it also wasn't doubted by the leaders of the English Reformation. Mm. Now, one of the things that I discovered as, uh, as I did research on this was that the leaders of the Reformed Church of England were very strongly committed to the idea that the bishops of the new, the people in the New Testament were bishops in in the in the later sense. Mm -hmm. They didn't doubt it. What you find is it's those in the left wing of the Puritan tradition who are dissenting from the Church of England, who for various reasons want to deny the tradition about bishops. The tradition of the Church of England that you find in the preface to the ordinal that there have been these three orders since times of the apostles is absolutely in line with what the church, church had always taught the church of england mm. in the reformation was was conservative if you read john jewell's apology one of the things that he says that identifies us with as non-heretical non-schismatic and in line with the early church is that we have the threefold order of ministry and that was just generally accepted yes and the reason they accepted it was very straightforward they said, okay, we know that James and the first epistles, uh, first bishops such as Timothy and Titus were appointed by the apostles. We know that. And we also know that Christ affirms the authority of the bishops in Revelation. He acknowledges their authority by writing to them as, as bishops. Mm -hmm. Now, if it, and basically they said, if it was good enough for the apostles, and if it was good enough for Christ, then it's good enough for us. Mm. We accept other things as authoritative because they're apostolic and because they have the approval of Christ. Bishops are apostolic. They have the approval of Christ. What more do you want? Yes. And that's actually what they said. Now, it's interesting, though, they, they, they didn't on that ground then say that churches that don't have bishops are not churches. Uh -huh. We know yes. that they were quite willing to acknowledge the existence of Lutheran and Reformed churches on the continent mm -hmm. who didn't have bishops. They understood the reasons why that was happening in the context of the 16th and 17th centuries. So although they said a church should have bishops, that's what that's God's intention. A church without bishops is not a church, is not, not a church. It's not not a church. Yes. You don't have to have a bishop in order to be a church, although we think it is the best way to do things. It is an apostolic. Um, it's a good thing to do. Christian leadership has rightly come under scrutiny in recent times. The Fellowship of Word and Spirit Conference 2023 seeks to take stock of that and reflect on some pertinent questions that arise from the Bible, from theology, and from the world today. What does it mean to lord it over people, like the rulers of the Gentiles? Who is there who can tell you to do something you don't want to do? What needs to change in our leadership models? Leadership Reset, the 2023 Fellowship of Word and Spirit Conference, will be taking place from the 30th of January to the 1st of February at the Hayes Conference Centre in Swanwick. This conference is suitable for all in church leadership, clergy or lay. We hope that this will be a time of genuine spiritual and physical refreshment. Please join us. 
in January 2023 for the Fellowship of Word and Spirit Conference Leadership Reset. Now, Martin, let's move on a little bit. So why um, uh, we see that in the early church, but things have obviously changed over the years. And there's a terrific section in your book where you trace through how Episcopacy has been understood throughout the ages. So just tell us a little bit about how Episcopacy has changed over the centuries, because it isn't now what it was then. Well, actually, I want to challenge that. Oh, I think Episcopacy as is properly laid down in the Book of Common Prayer Ordinal, and also actually in the canons that apply to bishops, mm-hmm. is, if properly exercised, exactly what it always was. Mm-hmm. I think there's a good news story to tell. Now, the good news story, it goes like this. Uh, as we know, uh, let, let, if we just concentrate on the Church of England, what we find is that from Saxon times onwards, bishops become important uh, officials in the state ah now that's a change though isn't it that is a change yeah they become advisors to kings they become uh leading magnets they they acquire land and status and power now that's it we can debate whether that was a good thing or not but what we find is when we go into the middle certainly when we get into the middle ages you have a major problem and the major problem is that the the official role of the bishops, their role in the state, their role as as magnets, as lords, actually comes to eclipse their spiritual role. There are very good saintly medieval bishops, such as Hugh of Lincoln or Richard of Chichester, but they are the exception, not because the bishops were necessarily bad men, but because their things they had to do to run their estates, to act as officials for the king to go on diplomatic missions meant they just didn't have the time and the ability to actually exercise the episcopal role in their diocese Mm -hmm. and so what you find more and more frequently as the middle ages go on is that bishops become largely feudal magnates whose role is largely legal and the episcopal bit is actually operated by what we would now call suffragan bishops assistant bishops Mm -hmm. who were either um Irish bishops, you know, <laughs> the Irish seas who came over. They weren't necessarily Irish themselves, but they, they, they held an Irish sea and yet they operated in, let's say, the Diocese of Lincoln. Or they were um, people who had um, what they called Episcopal seas in Partipus Infidelia and those parts of North Africa and Asia that had been taken over by the Muslims. Right. The, seas would, the title of that sea would be given to an assistant bishop and so he could operate the Episcopal role. Now, when you get to the Reformation, the reformers wanted to do away with all that. They said, no, bishops should primarily be preachers, teachers, pastors. Let bishops be bishops. Yeah, they should be bishops. And so they're trying to, and if you read the um, 1662 ordinal, that reflects the reformers' ambition. They should be godly pastoral bishops as they were set out in the New Testament, as you find it in the early church. But the problem was that they found it very difficult to break away from the old system. So when you get into the 18th century, for example, you find 
you're going back to almost a quasi-medieval approach. There are good godly bishops in the 18th century, but the problem is that bishops had to spend most of their time in London because they were all members of the House of Lords and they had to be in London when um, Parliament was in session. Now think about it. There's no railways. There's, they have to be in London most of the time. So even when they get better, their dioceses, which are large, they can't get round. Mm. So effectively, they couldn't act as bishops because practical reasons meant that it just was not possible. So half the year you're in London, then you have to be in your diocese, but your diocese needs running and you can't get round most of it. So you have things like mass confirmations. I mean, I mean, it's, it's a classic example. In St. Peter's Wolverhampton, there is a large plank. And that <laughs> plank, was, plank was for confirmations. So what the bishop did was he did mass confirmation in which you would have this plank. People would kneel down. The plank would be placed on their, on, on their shoulders. The bishop would lay his hands on the plank. And <laughs> confirmation would be done that way. Or you have field confirmation, records of field confirmations in which bishops would go into the fields and, Thousands and thousands of people would turn up and the bishop would lay their, point their hands towards them and go, and they go that way. And that kind of thing happens. I mean, the letter from John Newton, who was being um, pressed by his nonconformist friends as to why he was submitting to the tyranny of bishops. And he said, what earth are you talking about? I never see my bishop. <laughs> he lets me, get on with my, lets me get on with my job and I'm perfectly happy with it. And that was the reality. And then in the 19th century, you get people who began to realise that this just is not what was required. You get what's yes. called the diocesan revival, led by people like Christopher Wordsworth, Bishop of Oxford, and others, who really felt that they wanted to get back to the early church model. And they were able to start to be able to do that for a very simple reason. Railways were invented. Now, railways right. were revolutionary for bishops, and they were revolutionary for bishops because it meant they could actually get around. You could get back to your diocese from London on the train. Mm -hmm. And all these nice new trains meant that you could get around your diocese. So bishops began to be seen in their diocese. And they began to do active things. They began to teach and preach and confirm personally. And the model of the bishop began to go back to what the reformers had wanted all along. Mm -hmm. And they reached agreement that they should have more dioceses. And suffragan bishops should be appointed who would be proper suffragan bishops. So there was an increased appetite for having proper episcopacy functioning again in that. Absolutely. Way. Now, you can argue that um, the Oxford movement went over the top, and I would agree with that, in saying that bishops are a necessary part of the church and you can't have a church without bishops and the grace of God go goes purely through the episcopal line and all that kind of thing. That's but an Oxford maybe, movement idea. You're not promoting <laughs> that. I'm not promoting that, but what I'm saying is that that was a reflection of, the, of, of a desire to take bishops seriously. And so what you can't find in, in the 19th century is two things going on. Uh, too much emphasis on Episcopal authority, too much emphasis on the necessity of bishops, but also a proper recovery of what the bishop's role should be. So you find someone like John Charles Ryle, first, even first bishop of Liverpool, who, who is exercising an Episcopal role that is absolutely... New Testament, early church, yes. and doing that on the back of the expectation that, that had developed in the early 19th century, that bishops should do this kind of thing. 
Now, you mentioned Ryle, and he's obviously a great example of an evangelical bishop, but evangelicals are often reticent, negative about episcopacy. Why is that? Why is it that um, we, we've re reacted against them? Is it just because of the Oxford movement and they swung the pendulum too far in the other direction? And so by uh, reacting to that, we've also swung the pendulum too far against bishops. Is it because our current experience of bishops is that we hear them promoting universalism we hear them wanting to call god by feminine pronouns we hear them preaching gnosticism or the canonic and adoptionist heresies or panentheism or moral heresies like gay marriage and the schismatic tendency that that seems to introduce into the church is is that why evangelicals are, i mean those are just things in the last six months by the way um in the church of england is, is that why evangelicals are often negative about episcopacy are there other reasons right i think there are three basic reasons why evangelicals are oh well, let's make it four first of which is that uh, evangelicals always get disappointed John Charles Ryle was regarded as a great evangelical hero, but at the time there were many evangelicals who thought he sold out. Yes. And the reason is we have unrealistic expectations. Bishops can, are human and they can only do so much and they will only, they will fail. I mean, in, in um, my book, I, I talk about good enough bishops and that's quite specific. It's because of the reality that was recognized by bishops from Augustine onwards that a bishop will fail. He cannot do everything that he should do. He's not an angel. He's not an angel, he isn't, <laughs> but he's not an angel in the sense of being perfected. Yeah, exactly. And uh, bishops don't say what we would want them to say. They don't do what we want them to say. They're not available when we want them to be available. And we, we and just as uh, just as uh, parishioners kind of unex uh, unrealistic expectations of their clergy and anybody who's ordained knows that yeah. so the church can have unrealistic expectations of their bishops and we can be very unforgiving about the fact that they're doing a demanding role mm -hmm. and they themselves will be the first to admit they can't do everything they want to do so we are unre unrealistic is the first thing second thing is it's a reaction against the Oxford movement because the Oxford yeah. movement wanted to say bishops are the essay that the essence of the church and we rightly wanted to say they're not we tended to find reasons for saying that bishops aren't that important because we wanted tools to actually take down the uh, the anglo-catholic movement mm -hmm. thirdly evangelicals often see themselves as part of a pan-evangelical movement we are we we can fit, find ourselves we can think ourselves closer to our evangelical friends in the free churches than we find ourselves towards um, those in the Church of England, and we know that those in the free churches find evangelicals a very uh, find bishops a very touchy subject, and so we're inclined to play down the importance of bishops because we want to build good relationships with our with our evangelical friends in, in the free church system. Yes which is quite obvious. Uh, and, and the fourth reason, I think, is because we've become infected with liberal thinking historically. Okay. It's a fascinating thing that I discovered in the course of my research is that I found um, evangelical scholars who I will not name saying things about the origin of episcopacy which were actually taken from 19th century german liberal scholarship <laughs> um, 
we were this ambivalent position in that we will defend the historicity of the New Testament and bring in the traditions of the early church to show that the New Testament was written when we say it was written by who we said it was written by. Yes. But those very same arguments are denied when it comes to bishops. Right. So we will say, well, we know that, that the gospel of john was written by john because there's a unanimous because the internal evidence supports that and because there's a universal tradition of the later church that it was written by john but when it comes to the fact that the internal evidence of the uh, new testament supports the early existence of bishops and the universal tradition of the church supports that we say wait a minute no come on that can't be true and so we're not serious enough about our historical scholarship we have bought into um the liberal consensus which was developed um by german liberal scholars largely for all sorts of reasons which we wouldn't mm -hmm. want to buy theologically and we bought into that because it gives us a way of separating ourselves from our, those nasty anglo-catholics over there Yes. What we want to do is, to, what we need to do is recover a genuine reformed understanding of the importance of episcopacy. And we don't need to invent that because we were taught it by our uh, fathers at the Reformation. Yes, that's go right. Go back to the ordinal, go back to um, uh, the writings of the English reformers of the, of, of the 16th and 17th centuries, and you will find a biblical understanding of bishops clearly laid out. I think that's fascinating, Martin, that we, we often see in, a, in previous generations of evangelicals um, a tendency towards liberalism because of our poor theological education and that we bought into some of the consensus of German liberalism that we might have been taught or picked up at theological college without questioning it and without going back behind it to the Bible or to the reformers. That's fascinating. But while we've only got a few minutes more left to talk about bishops, there have been lots of new bishops just recently, I've noticed. So uh, in uh, in America, they've had a, a schism uh, between the Episcopal Church and a new thing called the Anglican Church in North America. And that's appointed lots of bishops and they therefore have overlapping jurisdictions. And I've noticed that in England, we have the Anglican Mission in England, which has appointed a couple of new bishops and a European network also associated with GAFCON and the wider Anglican Communion that's been appointing bishops. So bishops are all of a sudden, they're popping up everywhere, Martin. But we've got some sort of <clears throat> overlapping jurisdiction. So what's going on there? Is it a good idea to have overlapping jurisdiction? And what if we were to have, let's whisper it, some sort of third province idea where a new province with new bishops and maybe even a new archbishop would be set up? What's going on there? Um, we've only got a few minutes left, but talk to me about that. Yeah. Basically, the, the, the key term here is jurisdiction. Now, jurisdiction means an area in which a bishop has, has authority. Now, quickly to summarise, the bishops in principle have universal jurisdiction. The apostles had universal jurisdiction. Jesus Christ gave them the commission to take the gospel to all nations everywhere. But if you look in the New Testament, the apostles split up the world. <laughs> so Paul goes somewhere, Peter goes somewhere else. Thomas goes somewhere else. And they did that for good reasons, because you need to determine who's going to work where. 
And similarly with bishops, bishops as bishops have a universal jurisdiction, which is why you don't need to be reordained to work in a new diocese. So once you're a bishop, you can, in principle, preach, teach, ordain, confirm anywhere. But for the sake of good order, the church has agreed that bishops shall operate in particular places. And that avoids confusion in the same way as the parochial system avoids confusion. You know that you're the vicar of X and you have this responsibility. Mm. And similarly, you're the bishop of X and you have a responsibility for a particular area. But that's for the well-being of the church. It's not laid down in stone and you can modify it. Mm -hmm. and there are good reasons to modify it for two, in, in, in two places. First of all, you can modify it if bishops aren't doing their job. We find in the early church, uh, for instance, in, in the fourth century time, the Arian heresy, uh, orthodox people appointing new bishops where there were bishops already who had fallen into heresy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because they needed godly bishops. Okay, what do you do? You supply a new one. And my argument, and I, I would say that that's exactly what was done in North America with ACNA. Yes. The Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church in Canada had has had and has a lot of very suspect bishops. And ACNA quite rightly said, we need proper Episcopal oversight. So what will we do? We'll create some new bishops and give them authority. Yes. And Amy is doing much the same thing. It is saying, well, OK, we have got groups of people who are disaffected from the Church of England because of its move towards heretical teaching. They need Episcopal cover. What do we do? We provide them with bishops. Now, in an ideal situation, that wouldn't happen. In an ideal situation, just as uh, you don't have a clash of, of who's responsible for working in the parish, you don't have a clash about who's responsible for being a bishop of a particular area. But we're not in an ideal situation. No, we're not. <laughs> we're, and because we're not in an ideal situation, it's perfectly legitimate to say, OK, we will appoint bishops who have responsibility for people who are disaffected from the Church of England. And I think that's perfectly legitimate. They are operating a perfectly reasonable jurisdiction on people who have come out of the Church of England. So that's fine. Now, third province. Um, one of the things that the Church of England Evangelical Council, who I work for, has been working on in recent years is the idea that if, if things go wrong on human sexuality, we will eventually need visible differentiation, a way of differentiating Orthodox Anglicans in the Church of England from those who are no longer Orthodox. Yes. And that could take the form either of either of the division of the Church of England into two provinces, one Orthodox, one one liberal, or a third um, Orthodox province. Yes. Now, in both cases, you would have overlap. In other words, bishop the territory of bishops would no longer be as clearly geographically defined as it is now. So. Uh, on the first one, two provinces, Canterbury and York would overlap. Yes. They wouldn't be Can York in the north, Canterbury in the south. They would overlap, and similarly, the bishop, the diocese affiliated to them, would also overlap geographically. Mm -hmm. And that would also be true of a third province option. Now, that's no problem as long as the as long as you're aware of which parishes bishops are responsible for. Yes, would be in either scenario. Then. The principle of jurisdiction is still working. You're still saying a bishop is responsible for a certain set of people. 
Yes. And it can be put in brackets after the name of your church, which province you're part of, whether Canterbury or York or Mercia or whatever we're going to call it. Uh, And there is no problem with that at all. And that's a basic principle that you re the, the church has the right to redefine what the areas of jurisdiction are for bishops for the church's well-being and we've been doing that for years which is why for example the diocese of lincoln which used to run all the way from lincoln to what is now north london so <laughs> what so for example oak hill theological college in north london was in is in a place which was originally part of the diocese of lincoln wow which is a long way north for those listeners yeah, who are not lincoln, familiar lincoln with got, uk geography <laughs> and lincoln got broken up Yes, of course. In several dioceses, yeah. because it was necessary for the well-being of the church that it should be, and so you can reconfigure bishops' jurisdictions quite happily. There's no, there's no theological principle involved at all. What is the principle is that bishops should have the ability to do an episcopal job properly for a particular set of people. Mm. That's the bottom line. And the bottom line, Martin, just as we come to a close now, the bottom line is that bishops are for the well-being of the church because their role is um, what? Give us the bullet points. A bishop is supposed to. What are the bullet points? The bullet points is very simple. A bishop is a shepherd. Shepherd. Yeah. The chief shepherd is Jesus. Elderly shepherds. Bishops are superior or senior shepherds under Jesus and their responsibilities to care for the sheep. What does that mean? Well, it means feeding the sheep through word and sacrament. Mm -hmm. It means protecting the sheep from those who will lead them astray. Mm -hmm. And that includes doctrinally or in their false living, I suppose. Doctrinally, morally. It means caring for the sheep, so you care as much as you can for each individual sheep to make sure that they are flourishing as much as they can. Mm -hmm. It means appointing other shepherds to share the role and making sure that those other shepherds do the preaching, teaching, sacraments, pastoral care. That's what the bishop's role is. He is simply a shepherd to care for the flock, to protect the flock, to feed the flock, to appoint other shepherds to look after the flock. That's what a bishop does. Everything else is fluff added on to Everything else is fluff. That's, that's what they're called to do. Now, obviously, that involves administration. It involves law. It involves all those sort of things because it inevitably does, just in the same way that running a parish involves law and administration and finance and all that kind of thing. You have to do that. Any parish priest will tell you you have to do that. But that's not the main thing. That is ancillary to the main thing, which is to be the shepherd, caring, feeding, guiding the flock. Brilliant. And that's what we'd like more of. Um, as we come to a close, we, we want more bishops to do that, to be shepherds of the flock um, in in today's church, particularly in the Church of England. That's what we'd like, isn't it? Yeah, final thought. Uh, I start my book on Bishop's Past, Present and Future by pointing out that the great Scottish reformer John Knox, who is normally seen as the Arch-Presbyterian, <laughs> in fact, his dying advice to the kirk in scotland was what the kirk needed was more and better bishops oh splendid and actually that's what we would say for the church of england what we need is more godly bishops the solution of the 
for the problems of the Church of England is not disregarding bishops or doing away with bishops, but having better bishops who take their shepherding role seriously and who take it seriously according to the teaching of the scriptures, the early church and the Anglican formularies. Well, dear listener, what promise to do. dear listener, let us pray with John Knox for better and more bishops in the Church of England today and throughout the Anglican communion. That's what we hope for. That's what we long for. That's what Church Society is praying for and working for. Um, please join us again on the Church Society podcast. See us also online. And uh, why not think about joining Church Society or becoming a partner church as a church with Church Society? You can do that. Look on our website, churchsociety.org. I look forward to uh, seeing you again next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm-hmm.